Point number one in your notes this morning, I want to I teach you this morning that there is a presence of keys in the Bible. And, and as we study Revelation chapter one, we're going to actually look at a, a lot of verses this morning. I just want to illustrate the point that verse 18, Christ himself says that he has some keys. Now in verse 18, it says that he has the keys of hell and of death. And we're going to get to that in just a few minutes. But, but I want you to understand those aren't the only keys in the Bible, and those aren't the only keys that Jesus Christ has possession of. As a matter of fact, if we were just to study the word key throughout the Bible, we would see that, number one, there is a key of knowledge. And that's mentioned in the book of Luke, chapter 11, and verse 52. As a matter of fact, Jesus is, is rebuking the Pharisees he says unto, unto them, Woe unto you lawyers, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in, ye hindered. And, and Christ himself says that there is a key to knowledge, and God wants you to go through that door. And you got to have the right key to understand knowledge from the Word of God. And he's rebuking religious leaders saying that you had access to that and you didn't even go through it. And the people that were trying to go through that, you hindered their access to that. And, and of course, you could talk about how knowledge is really God's word and the application and understanding God's word. I just want you to know that there's a key of knowledge and Christ owns that key. Number two, there's the key of David in the Bible. In Isaiah 22 and verse 22, it says this, it says, the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. And if you were to cross-reference that with Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7, you're going to see that there, there was a church in Philadelphia that Christ gave this key to. He actually opened some things for a church for them to have access to some things. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7 says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that's holy, he that's true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. And I want you to understand that God opens doors that no man can shut. And God shuts doors that no man can open. And for the church of Philadelphia, God opened a door to preach the gospel. He opened the door to get the gospel to the world. And, and we'll talk about those seven churches and, and what they represent for us today and what they were historically. But can I just tell you that Paul understood this principle? All through Paul's writings, Paul talked about that God himself even asked for prayer, that God would open doors to speak the gospel. You got to have an open door to speak the gospel. And, and, and I, didn't, I didn't put it on the screen, but Colossians chapter 4 and verse 3 says, Paul writes and he says, With all, praying for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds. Can I just tell you that you can't force the gospel on people? God has to open the door. Have you ever tried to, to just force the gospel into a conversation? Just preach at people? And if that door wasn't open, do you realize how hard that was? And I'm not saying you, you don't go cold call evangelism. I'm not saying that you don't go door to door. I'm not saying we don't go to the park and meet people. But what we need to do is pray that God opens the door of utterance for us. That's probably where most of us miss, miss it in evangelism. 
we, 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 we are all about maybe speaking the gospel. We forget to pray that God needs to open that door, right? God's got to open the door of utterance so that we can speak the mystery of Christ. And, and Paul said that, you know, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, he said, there's a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. And so Paul realized, hey, listen, here's an open door to preach the gospel, but that doesn't mean the devil's going to sit back and, and take a break. We have to pray that God opens the door. He has the key of David, and he gave the key of David to the church of the Philadelphians, and we'll talk about that later. But just understand, God opens doors for us to preach the gospel. Number three, there are keys to the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 19, when Christ is speaking to, to Peter, he says, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Notice that these are the keys of the kingdom of heaven. These aren't the keys to heaven. And so many times in Christian culture, man, we, we have this imagery of St. Peter standing at the pearly gates with the keys, right? And, and you stand before Peter and you give your story and he's the one that grants you access or, or denies you access. And listen, that is absolutely not biblical at all. The, the keys that, that Christ gave Peter were the keys of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And if you are a student of the Bible, you know that that phrase, the kingdom of heaven, represents a literal, visible, physical kingdom that appears on this earth. And it's only one book of the Bible that contains that phrase. It's the book of Matthew, because the book of Matthew paints Christ as the king of the Jews. And so in that book of Matthew is every reference to the kingdom of heaven. And it is interesting that God said there's, there's keys to that kingdom of heaven. Well, keys means more than one. It's plural. And he gave those to Peter. Well, what did Peter do after the resurrection of Christ? Well, on the day of Pentecost, after he was filled with the Holy Spirit of God, he began to preach to the nation of Israel, the Jews. And he opened the, the door of the kingdom to the nation of Israel, to the Jews. He did that in Acts chapter 2. But as you continue through the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 10, Peter shows up at a Gentile's house named Cornelius, and he begins to preach the gospel to him. And, and he opened the door of the kingdom for both Jew and Gentile in the book of Acts. And there's a lot we could talk about there, but we need to move on for time's sake. Peter opened the door of the kingdom, and, and the kingdom of heaven is the physical, literal kingdom. Peter's ministry is not mentioned again after Acts chapter 15. As a matter of fact, Paul comes on the scene in Acts, Acts chapter 9, and then uh, Paul is the main character throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Peter's not mentioned again after Acts chapter 15. You just need to know that there were some keys that were given to Peter, and he unlocked those doors to the people group that needed access. And God, God gave him those keys through the person of Jesus Christ. Number four, there is the key of the bottomless pit. And you find that in the book of Revelation chapter 9. Verses 1 to 3, and I don't understand all there is. Maybe by Revelation chapter 9, we'll figure it out. The Bible says in verse 1, The fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, because you can't open it without a key, and there arose smoke out of the pit, and the smoke of a great furnace, 
and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. They, there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. And again, man, there's a lot going on there. You just need to know that that, 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 that key to the bottomless pit was, was put in the keyhole. And when that thing was open, there was some stuff that came out of the bottomless pit. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, there's going to be an angel come down from heaven having the key to that bottomless pit. And this time, somebody's going in that pit. And that person that's going in is none other than the devil and Satan himself, the old serpent that Revelation 20 and verse 2 says is going to be locked away for a thousand years. Well, you got to have a key to do that. And, and the person that possesses the key to do that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Number five, there is the key to hell. And we, we kind of read that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus said, I'm alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys. And, and keys is plural, so there's two. The key of hell and the key of death. And, and so there is a key that unlocks or locks hell. And, and let me just remind you that hell was never intended for man. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 25 and verse 41... Jesus tells us that that everlasting fire was prepared for the devil and for his angels. And this is really important as we talk about this morning. We're going to talk about hell and death. Okay, that's, uh, that sounds real festive. Okay, no, maybe not. But, but it is important. And it is important that you understand God's intention for man was that he would never go to hell. As a matter of fact, the preparation for that place was specifically for the devil and for his angels, okay? And, and I want you to understand that Peter himself doesn't have the keys of hell and death, so he's not standing at the pearly gates waiting for you uh, to get in or, or to plead your case. I would be remiss if I didn't tell a good St. Peter joke at this point in the sermon. So a man shows up to heaven. St. Peter asked if he'd done any good deeds, right? Because all good Catholics want to know what you've done. The man replied, as a matter of fact, I have. I've done some good deeds, and the man went on to tell about seeing a biker beating up his girlfriend. And he told how he thrust himself in the middle to protect this woman from her angry boyfriend. And that the biker even punched him in the face. And impressed, St. Peter asked, man, that's awesome. Uh, when did you do that? And the man answered, about 10 minutes ago. <laughs> and so there you go. There's your St. Peter joke for the day. Peter, unfortunately, doesn't have the keys of hell. He doesn't have the keys of death, nor does he have the keys of heaven. He had the keys to the kingdom of heaven. But Christ has all of these keys. Lastly, Christ has the key of death. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18, I'm alive forevermore and have the keys of hell and death. And so, and so you just need to know as you study the Bible that the Lord's keychain is pretty big. And he has access to a lot of things that are all part of his eternal purpose and kingdom. And so point number two, we've already made this point, but get the blank. The possessor of those keys is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And I remember growing up, you know, you get of age where you can drive and, you know, maybe you get your permit or maybe you get your license, but man, at 15 or 16, I, I didn't have my own car. I always had to go to my dad, right? Dad, can I borrow the keys? Can I borrow the keys, Right. And reluctantly, he gave me the keys, and, you know, he paid for that a little bit later because I wrecked a few of his cars, but, you know, got a few tickets, 
But I always had to go to my dad because he possessed the keys. I didn't possess those things. He had the power over those things. He could grant me access, but he's the one that had the power. Christ is the possessor of these keys. He's the possessor because he has all power. And we just need to be reminded, Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came and spake unto his disciples. He said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And as we look at these keys, man, some of these keys, I mean, these are kingdom keys. They're keys to hell, which is in the heart of the earth, the key of death. I mean, I mean these, these keys cover the entire spectrum of creation, but Christ has them all. As a matter of fact, in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 9 through 11, the Bible says that God has highly exalted Christ, his son, and he's given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things, listen, in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the point is, Christ has all power in heaven and in earth and even under the earth, okay? And, and so he is the possessor of the keys. And, and, then, and then thirdly, let's get to this point, because this is the meat of the message, the power of the keys. And, and specifically, we're going to talk about the two keys that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, the key of hell and the key of death. And those are two things that generally strike fear in most people, fear of the unknown, fear, fear of, man, am I going there, fear of death. And, and listen, I don't want to I don't want to be insensitive at all, but, but the last two years especially, man, we have been more sensitive uh, to the frailty of our human life. We've had to become very sensitive to the fact that, man, we're not as invincible as, as maybe we thought we were. And we've lost loved ones, and we've lost church members, and we've lost friends and family. And, and listen, it, it is a sobering reminder that, that, man, life is short and then eternity. And where you spend eternity really is settled in this life. It's settled in this life. And so we need to understand, number one, that Christ holds the key of hell in his hand, okay? And as we talk about hell, we need to understand that hell is a real place. Hell is a real place. As a matter of fact, you have a whole half a chapter in Luke chapter 16 that gives a story. It's not a parable, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a story that Christ tells of a rich man and a man named Lazarus. And, and, and some people would say, well, that's a parable. Jesus is just teaching a, 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 you know, a, a spiritual truth through that. Well, every other time in the book of Luke, God tells you when he's speaking in a parable. It says he spake a parable. And God also never uses proper names in a parable. And in Luke chapter 16, he doesn't say it's a parable, and he uses a proper name, Lazarus. And it absolutely coincides with all the other scripture. And just a summary of the story is there's two men, a rich man and Lazarus. Both men died. One went to a place called Abraham's bosom, a place of comfort, a place of rest. The other went to a place called hell. And the Bible says it's hell in Luke chapter 16. It doesn't say Hades. It doesn't say anything. It says it's hell. And in hell, there's torment there's flames, there's an unquenchable thirst, there's regret, there's all of your senses, seeing, hearing, feeling, memories, and the ability to speak. And in hell, there are also unanswered prayers. 
Because that man in hell was, was begging Abraham, send someone to tell my brethren so that they don't come to this place. Hell's a real place. And we know that there's at least one man in it because of Luke chapter 16. So hell is real. Christ holds the key of hell, but you need to understand it's a real place. Hell, secondly in your notes, hell is designed for your soul and spirit. It was never in, intended for your soul and spirit, but it's a, it's a place where the soul and spirit go of those that reject the gospel. As a matter of fact, if you were to go back to Jonah chapter 2, Jonah is a great picture of Christ in the Old Testament. You guys remember the story of Jonah? Jonah was a prophet called to preach to, to Nineveh. He had, a, he had a problem. He was disobedient. He backslid against God. He run from his calling. So God chastened him. And the way God chastened him was he, he let him be swallowed by a whale, a great fish in Jonah, a whale, it tells us in, uh, in Matthew chapter 12. So Jonah, when he's in that belly of the whale, and I don't understand it and can't put it together other than just to believe what the Bible says, but he says in Jonah 2 and verse 2, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, because Jonah was being afflicted. And he heard me, and out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou hearest my voice. So Jonah physically, bodily, was in the whale's belly. And spiritually, at the same time, where was he? He was in hell. And he was afflicted. So much so that he cried out. Now, the difference in Luke 16 and Jonah 2 is that in Jonah chapter 2, God had mercy and let him out. And by the way, when he let him out, he went and did what God told him to do. So your chastening is for a reason, Christian. When your chastening ceases, it's time to go do what God told you to do. And some of us hadn't figured that out yet. We keep running from God and wonder why our life is afflicted and wonder why it's not getting any better. And we're begging God for mercy. Well, listen, when he gives you mercy, you had better be about what he told you to do. And that's what Jonah illustrates for us. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 12... Jesus tells the, the Pharisees, listen, you're, you're an evil and adulterous generation. You're seeking after a sign, and you're not going to get any other sign other than the, the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jonah went to hell. Bodily, he was in the whale's belly. Spiritually, he was in hell, which paints an interesting picture for us of Jesus Christ. Because in Acts chapter 2, the Bible says concerning Christ that there was a prophecy that was fulfilled in Christ's death and burial. Acts 2 and verse 27 says, Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. That's a, that's a direct quote from Psalm 16 and verse 10. Thou will not leave my soul in hell, neither, neither will I suffer thy holy one to see corruption. And so it is interesting that the person that was to be a sign of Jesus Christ, Jonah, died, went to hell, and came out. That's very interesting. And, and people argue all the time, well, did Jesus Christ really go to hell when he died? Did he really go to hell uh, did he not go to Abraham's bosom and lead captivity captive? Of course he did. The book of Ephesians tells us that. But Acts chapter 2 and verse 31 also says, he seeing this before, he the psalmist, 
spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell. Neither did his flesh see corruption. And listen, we know that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, his body was put in a, in a, in a borrowed tomb. Bodily, he was in that tomb. Spiritually, where was he? Well, one place that he was, according to Acts chapter 2, was in hell. And he was also in Abraham's bosom because he led captivity captive. Well, hell doesn't really mean hell. Well, let me just defer all the biblical explanation to you instead of the Word of God. Give me a break. It says it right there. You don't have to dance around it. You don't have to, you need to believe what the Word of God says. And it says that Christ was in hell. By the way, we don't argue that Jonah was in hell, but somehow we argue that Christ was. And the reason he was is because of my sin and your sin. That's why he has the key to it. That's why he has access to it. That's why he has victory over it. Because he went there and he came out. Number three, hell has gates. The Bible says in Matthew 16 and verse 18, I say unto thee also, thou art Peter. And upon this rock, the rock of Jesus Christ, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter is not the rock upon which the church is built. Christ is. And the Bible tells us that hell has gates and that those gates won't prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. Do you know why it won't prevail? Because Christ has the key. Christ has the key. And, and, and so here's the key for us to understand. Look, the deliverance from hell is in the very person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know that's simple, man. If you've, if you've been in church for any amount of time, I think you understand that principle. But maybe you're new, and, and, and maybe this thing of heaven and hell is, is kind of on your radar, but you don't really know. Like, man, how does a person escape the penalty and, and the, the pain and the torment of hell for all of eternity? Well, it's in the person of Jesus Christ. I, listen, at 21 years old, I believed there was a heaven and a hell. I just didn't know how to navigate to get to one or the other. I just didn't have a clue. And someone shared with me that Jesus Christ, because he died for my sin, he was buried, he rose again the third day, he ascended to the Father, because of his shed blood, I could be forgiven of my sin, I don't have to pay the penalty that I'm required to pay, because he paid it for me. And, and, and so listen, the deliverance from hell is only in the person of Jesus Christ. And listen, in the Old Testament, we know that people, when they died, they went to Abraham's bosom because their sin still had to be paid for through the blood of the cross. But do you understand that in the New Testament, if you are saved, if you are born again, if you are in Christ, you will never experience one second of hell. You'll never experience it. You say, well, my life's a living hell. Not even close. <laughs> Not even close. I, I assure you that it may be bad, but it ain't that bad. And do you understand that in Christ, because Christ has the key of hell, and I am in Christ, even if I did go to hell, I could get out. Because I'm in the person that has the key. And so hell has no victory over me. Hell has no power over me. But let me just tell you, in the same way for the Christian, that hell is, is no threat. Listen, if you're lost today, hell is a place that you'll never be able to escape from. 
In other words, if you die in your sin without being forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ applied to your life, if you don't ask Christ to save you from your sin, that means you get to pay for your sin yourself. And how long is that going to take? It'll take eternity. And for the lost that reject the gospel, because Christ has the key to hell, you will never be able to escape it. You will never be able to make a deal with the devil to get out. You won't be able because Christ has the key, because forgiveness is available only in Christ. And so get this key in your notes, because Christ holds the key to hell, my soul and my spirit are secure in him. Aren't you thankful for that? Man, aren't you thankful? You will not experience one second of it, and one second would be too much. We, we, couldn't even, we couldn't even handle that, man. And I'm telling you, people will spend an eternity there with no reprieve. But as a believer in Christ, man, I'm secure in the person of Jesus Christ because of his finished work, not because of mine, because of what he's done. And so our heart and our hope are to be able to tell others that there is a deliverance available in Christ because I'm secure in him. I should shout to the mountaintops that forgiveness is available in Christ. We know who holds the key. And there are some people that need to know the key holder. And it's Jesus. Amen? Man, I'm thankful for that. Number two, I'm thankful that Christ holds the key to death. I'm thankful that Christ holds the key to death. Now, now we need to go, and, and, and for time's sake, we're not going to do it. But if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 in the garden, God's intention for, for mankind was to never die. God's intention for Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and to multiply and replenish the earth and to live in eternal fellowship with him. But because of sin, both spiritual death and physical death entered into the picture. But God's intention, just like God's intention for hell was never for us, God's intention for death was never for us. But because of our sin and the consequence of our sin, that's what we deserve. So just like hell is, is for the soul and the spirit, get this in your notes, death is for the body. Death is for the body. And, and you, you are a triune being. You have a soul, a, a spirit, and a body. And what dies is our body, okay? And if we go back to Genesis chapter 35, there's a great passage that shows us from the Old Testament really what death is. And again, it shows us how we're made up of more than just this flesh and blood body. Genesis 35, verse 18, it says, It came to pass, and it's talking about Rachel in the Old Testament. As her soul was in departing, parentheses, for she what? For she died. If you want a good biblical definition for death as it relates to this body, it's when our soul departs. It's when our soul departs. That she called the name, his name uh, Benani, and his father called him Benjamin, and Rachel died and was what? Was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. So when a person dies, listen, their soul and their spirit depart from their body, and, and their body is buried. And again, I don't want to be insensitive, but that's the reality according to the Word of God. It, it's when our soul leaves the body. Our body is put in a tomb, it's put in the ground, it's cremated, but, it, but it's, it's returned to the earth. Death is for the body. Now here's what we need to understand. Christ holds the key of death, 
And the reason that he holds the key of death is because Christ literally died on the cross of Calvary. And again, this is a a point of contention amongst people that are doubters of Christianity. They're doubters of, of the deity of Christ. Jesus said in verse 18, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I'm alive evermore. Amen. Because he only died once. And he's he's never going to die again. Christ died. It wasn't some kind of soul sleep. It wasn't him putting off his deity and dying just as a man. As a matter of fact, if that's what happened, your sins are still unforgiven. Because if a man, any man died for your sin instead of the God man, you're still in your sin. Because no man has the key to hell. No man has the key to death. But, but this is an important part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3, Paul writes and he says, I delivered unto you first of all that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins. You see, his death on the cross was for my sin. It was for your sin, and it was according to the scriptures. Christ died being yet sinless. Now, now we all know who deserved to be on that cross. Me and you, me and you, and every other man, and other woman, every other child that's ever lived. Listen, we're all sinners, and Christ died a death that wasn't due him, but he died it for me. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 says, but we see, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. That verse tells you right there why Christ came as a man. He came as a man to redeem mankind. He came as a man so that he could die the death that we were due. The Bible says that he was crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Point number four in your notes, listen, every man has an appointment with death. Hebrews 9 and verse 27, the Bible says, As it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. The truth is we all have a standing appointment. We don't know when that appointment is. Some people do. You know, I think think Peter knew. Peter says that the time of his departing was near. Paul knew. You may know. I don't know. I don't know. But I know that there's an appointment on God's calendar. And for every one of us, outside of the rapture of the church, we're going to stare, face, we're going to stare death face to face personally. We need not fear that if we know Christ. We need to not fear that personally. We need not fear that for our loved ones. Listen, if anything, this ought to give us assurance and comfort and strength that the person that has the key of death is Christ himself. And because I know him, death has no power over me. Even the devil, Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 2 and verse 14, that the devil has the power of death. I mean, at best, your physical life could end on this planet. That's something that we never fully can grasp. And I understand that, man. I I don't understand it. And I have loved ones that have passed before me and I have loved ones that I don't want to pass. And and listen, it's a sensitive thing. It's It's a painful thing. But when we view it through the lens of scripture, we can have victory because we know the one that has the key of death. Okay. Jesus died himself and through his death, he destroyed the power of the devil in our lives. Look at Hebrews 2 and verse 14. I love this verse. For as much then as the children are partakers of the flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Christ became flesh and blood. That through death, 
He might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. I mean, the best thing the devil had against us was the power of death. He started that in Genesis chapter 3. And Christ said, okay, I'll take that from you. I'm going to go ahead and die that death for those I'm going to redeem. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to resurrect myself from, from the dead. And I'll just take that key because it's mine anyways. That's powerful. That's powerful. And what that means for us is that because Jesus Christ holds the key to death, my body is secure in him. Just like because he holds the key to hell, my soul and spirit are secure in him. Listen, if I die today, my body is secure in him. Now listen, I know that I think all of your blanks are filled in, but I'm not done yet. Matter of fact, by my estimation, I got at least five minutes. Can you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? And I want you to consider two passages with me, why this is so important for us to understand as Christians. Because outside the rapture of the church, I'm going to experience death, and you are too. But that's not anything that you have to be fearful of. It's a doorway. It's a doorway. It's a valley that leads to eternity. And not only does it lead to eternity, but it leads to Christ. God tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so, man, listen, for the Christian, it's powerful. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, look what it says in verses 13 to 18. Paul writes and he says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. In other words, those that, that are in Christ that have died before us, our loved ones, our family, our friends. Listen, Paul said, listen, don't be ignorant, brethren. Don't sorrow not even as others which have no hope. It doesn't mean that we can't sorrow. We should sorrow. I have friends and family that I miss dearly. But I sorrow just because I miss them, but I know I'm going to see them again. I don't sorrow as someone without hope. There are people that sorrow because they don't know what eternity holds. They have no assurance in their life because they don't know Christ. But I'm telling you, I know what this book says. And I know what God says about death. I know what he says about hell. I know what he says about the gospel. And I know what he says about my reunion with those that are in Christ that I love and I miss. I'm going to see him again. So we don't sorrow as as those without hope. Look at verse 14. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Wait a second. I thought their body's in the ground. Yes, but their soul and spirit are with him in heaven. And when Christ returns, he's going to bring their soul and spirit. Look at verse 15. For this we say by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Man, God God tells us in this passage that for the believer in Christ, dead or alive, your body is secure in him. Because those that are dead in Christ, God is going to resurrect How does that work? Man, I don't know how it works. I just believe he's going to do it because he can't lie. And those that are alive, he's going to rapture up out of here. 
And I'm telling you, you know, we talked about how every one of us have a death, uh, an appointment with death. Sometimes you miss appointments. You ever miss that appointment with a dentist or miss that doctor's appointment or miss that physical therapy appointment? Sometimes you have an appointment where you miss the appointment. And, and listen, when the rapture happens, because every one of us have an appointment with death, there's going to be some people that never die. But outside, that's the exception to the rule. It proves the rule, but it's the exception to the rule. But I'm thankful that in Christ, my body is secure, whether I'm in the ground, whether I'm alive on this earth. When Christ comes for his church, I'm safe. Which leads me to 1 Corinthians 15. And this is where we'll end, verses 51 to 58. I just want to encourage you. What, what, what can we take away? What is, what is the practical application of knowing and understanding that Christ has the keys of hell and death? How, how does that make our life any different when we walk out of here? Well, I think the answer is in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 51. Paul says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Now, he's not talking about Sunday morning church. Huh. What was the blank? Okay. There we go. Everybody's waking up now. That's good. But we shall all be changed. Okay. That's also the, the, the life verse for the nursery, right? We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Okay. <laughs> I knew I'd get you awake somehow. So, so Paul's talking about the same event in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. And we, meaning we that are alive, shall be changed. For this, this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? <laughs> o grave, where is thy victory? And those two statements, can I just help you understand? Listen, those that are dead, uh, those that are dead are going to say, O grave, where's your victory? I was in you, but now I'm out of you. And those that are alive are going to say, oh, death, where's, my, where's your sting? Because I'm never going to experience it. If I'm alive when the rapture happens, there is no sting of death for me. The Bible says the sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen, 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 amen. But there's one more verse. And listen, I set you up because I wanted to get to this verse. Because we have victory over death, hell, and the grave. Well, it ought to make us, it ought to make us a little different. Look at verse 58. The Bible says, therefore. Okay, so Paul just gets through telling us, man, we got victory. Death is, is defeated. The grave has no power. Death has no sting for us. In the person of Jesus Christ. Well, that's not the end of the chapter. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Here's the point. Because I know who has the keys... The possessor of the keys is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. And because I know him, and I'm in him, and I'm forgiven by him, 
And because I have victory in him, God has called me to be some things. Number one, he's called me to be steadfast. And that has to do with my mind and my spirit. I need to be fixed-minded about this ministry that God has given me to do. And the reason I need to have my mind fixed is because death has no victory, hell has no power, it cannot defeat me in the person of Jesus Christ. I have nothing to fear on this planet. So because of that, I need to be more diligent and more faithful and more abounding in the work of the Lord. You see, what's interesting is because of COVID, the church has gotten scared. We're scared to meet. We're scared to evangelize. We're scared to go to the world, to preach the gospel. We're scared to make disciples. We've been immobilized by a lie because we don't have anything to fear. Now, the rest of those people on the planet that don't know Christ have a lot to fear. They have death to fear and they have hell to fear. And if they don't fear that, they need to sober up. But we don't have anything to fear. As a matter of fact, we're victorious already in Christ. And so because of that, we need to be steadfast. We need to have our mind fixed on the mission at hand. Number two, we need to be unmovable. That means we're standing on a firm foundation. And we're not budging. We're not giving up ground to the enemy. We're not giving up ground to the politics, to the government officials, to Fauci. We're not giving ground up to anybody. We need to be unmovable as the church of Jesus Christ. We need to be steadfast, unmovable, and then we need to be always abounding. We need to have abundance in ministry, and we need to understand it won't be popular. It won't be what everybody's excited about, but we need to labor in the work of the Lord. And we need to understand that our labor is not in vain. And let me just tell you, in these last days, it's going to seem like you're laboring an uphill battle. And you are. But just don't get weary in it. Let us not be weary in well-doing, Paul says to the Galatians. For in due season we'll reap if we faint not. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 13, But ye brethren, be not weary in well-doing. Here's the point. I think all of us agreed with with 99% of this message. Thank God, Jesus Christ has the keys of hell and death. Thank God, I have forgiveness. Thank God, I'm not going to hell. Thank God that I don't even have to fear physical death in this life because my body is secure in him. He's going to rapture me out of the ground, man. And all that's true. But because all that's true, man, it it ought to make us live our life motivated to be about his work. And that's the point. The power in the principle is that we are already victorious. And because of that, we need to be more diligent about the work of the Lord than we ever have before because we don't have anything to fear. We don't have anything to fear. Man, you think about these missionaries, man, that, you know, you got the Horvaths in Hungary, you got the Vances in Kenya, you got the Jalowicks in, in Zambia. You know, now Cody told me this morning they're shutting down travel to and from Africa, you know, places in Africa because there's a new strain of COVID, blah, 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 blah. Okay, okay, whatever. Who cares? I mean, if we believe what we just read, we're already victorious. 
So, so maybe we go to Zambia and we give our life for the gospel. Or maybe we go to Hungary and we give our life for the gospel. Or maybe we just go to Huntsville, Alabama and just give our life for the gospel. Man, your labor's not in vain. It's not in vain. And it'll be all worth it because when you see Christ the way John saw Christ, when you see him face to face, well, it's going to give an amazing clarity to everything that we've, we've done. Does that make sense? I love you, church, man. We, we got some tough days ahead in our culture. We have some tough days ahead, but we know who holds the keys. And because we're victorious in him, we don't have anything to fear. We don't have anything to fear. We just need to be about the work. And it's going to be tough, and it's going to be hard, and it's going to be unpopular. And listen, I think the last two years have showed us that along the way, we're going to see our loved ones, our friends, our family. Some will go home and be with the Lord. That ought to motivate us even more to get the gospel out. It ought to motivate us. And we see Christ is all going to be worth it. I love you very much. I hope that's an encouragement to you. Let's pray and we'll dismiss.